Good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon's uh, Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I'm Kurt Couchman, I'm Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, before we get started with today's presentation, I'd like to do just a couple of quick things. Uh, I'd like to draw your attention to the Cato Handbook on Policy, which if you aren't already familiar with it, it's a comprehensive guide to what our scholars think should be done about the most important policy concerns in America today. Um, it's available online. You can download it free of charge. And uh, we also make copies available to policymakers and their staff. Um, now, of course, as an overview, it can only have so much information. Uh, in fact, the uh, topic of today's presentation, I believe, gets a paragraph in uh, the energy chapter. But there's an awful lot more on our website. So I would encourage you to go to cato.org to see everything else that our scholars have written about various topics. Um, on that note, uh, we also have some handouts on the registration table. I hope you've all picked them up. Uh, they provide a lot of good background information about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and uh, what to be done about it. So, which brings us to today's topic. The SPR, what is it? Why do we have it? What good is it? Was there ever a rationale for it? And is there one today? And of course, what should be done about it, and how do we get from here to there? Our first speaker today is Jerry Taylor. As a senior fellow, he challenges the market failure critique of free markets as they pertain to energy policy and environmental protection. Under his direction, the Cato Institute has become an influential critic of federal and state environmental policy. Taylor is active on the lecture circuit and one of the most frequently cited experts in energy and environmental policy in the nation. He has served on numerous congressional advisory bodies and has testified over a dozen times at hearings on Capitol Hill. Taylor is the author of numerous studies and journal essays on energy and environmental issues, including the one that you have today, and has contributed to several anthologies, including Market Liberalism, A New Paradigm for the 21st Century, Liberalism in the Sense of Freedom, uh, so market freedom is a topic of that, uh, China as a Global Economic Power, Market Reforms in the New Millennium, and Earth Report 2000, Revisiting the True State of the Planet. He is a frequent contributor to prominent newspapers and magazines and has written for the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. Additionally, Taylor is a regular commentator on Fox News, CNBC, CNN, NPR, and the BBC. Thank you, Kurt, for that generous introduction that I wrote. <coughs> you read it very well. <laughs> My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and for 17 years now, I have been working on energy and environmental public policy issues for Cato, and of course, as you might guess, over the last several years, that means discussing oil markets 24-7 every day and all the time. And in the course of that conversation, whenever energy prices are high, one of the topics, which is a perennial, is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So in case there's a pop quiz back in your offices today to make sure that you listen to me, uh, I will give you the answers to the quiz you will probably uh, be subjected to. The SPR was established in 1975. It is uh, composed of 50 artificially created uh, uh, caverns and salt rock formations scattered through Texas and Louisiana. It is uh, owned and managed by the federal government. It has 705 million barrels of crude oil in it. Uh, despite what you may have read in the Wall Street Journal the other day, uh, it's actually uh, 285 million barrels of light crude and 420 million barrels of heavy crude. 
Uh, it has a withdrawal capacity of 4.3 million barrels a day. Uh, that is about what Iran is putting into the global market at present. Uh, so it's, it, to, to fully tap SPR would be essentially adding a new robust member of OPEC to the world market, but it would not last for long. It would provide about 6% of the world's uh, supply of, of oil for about 163 days until it ran dry. Those are the answers you'll need to pass your pop quiz about what the SPR is and what it can do. Um, to me, the more interesting thing is not the recitation of facts and figures, but to uh, walk through some of the legislative history and some of the ideas that animate the SPR, and that's primarily what I'll talk about uh, this afternoon. The SPR was established in 1975 as a response to the 1973 Arab oil embargo. The idea was to ensure that if another embargo were to ever come our way, we would have a stock of physical supply that we could tap at will. So think of the SPR as a gigantic uh, mattress below which we stuff oil in case we might ever need it. Um, the fundamental problem with the SPR stems from exactly that basis. There is no reason to worry about embargoes because embargoes are make-believe events. Uh, they are symbolic gestures that do not affect the embargoed country. The reason is, is once producers put oil into the world market, it goes wherever middlemen and market actors dictate it goes. It doesn't go where the producer may want it to go. So, for instance, in 1973, all that happened uh, during the embargo was instead of buying oil from Arab members of OPEC, the United States bought oil from people who bought oil from Arab members of OPEC. The embargo was no more capable of keeping oil out of the United States than the uh, These are robust and fungible markets, and embargoes are not things we have to worry about. It turns out you can have all the oil you want if you're willing to pay market prices for crude oil. If you've got a credit card and a flight to, Amps to uh, Rotterdam, there is no shortage of how much oil you could bring into the United States market. Now, a lot of people, when you tell them the story about what happened in 1973, it just cuts across the grain of everything we've always heard about the gas lines and whatnot that formed during that embargo. In fact, if you read Henry Kissinger's memoirs, you'll find that the embargo was the chief uh, matter of concern to him and his State Department for about 16 months until it was removed. Um, so I, I really don't believe in PowerPoints, but I do believe in graphics. So I'm going to give you two of them during my presentation. The very first one is a uh, graphic of U.S. oil imports over time. I'm not going to tell you what the x-axis is for a minute, but the y-axis is billions of barrels. This is data regarding U.S. oil imports over time. Again, I'm not going to tell you what the time series is, whether it's quarterly, monthly, weekly, annual, or what. Uh, but that's the time series, and what I'd ask you to do is figure out where on that, uh, in that time series was the Arab oil embargo. You might guess it's right near the peak before oil imports dropped. You'd be wrong. That's the time series, 1949 to 2007, and that's 1973. So the data is quite clear. The Arab oil embargo did no such thing. It was not capable of reducing imports into the United States. The only thing that uh, producers could do to keep the United States from getting physical supply through international markets is to marshal some sort of uh, deep-sea naval fleet that can put a blockade on U.S. ports. And that is, of course, not in the offing right now. So physical access to supply is not a problem. We don't need to stuff oil under our mattresses to make sure we can get oil during times of trouble. But economists who defend the SPR don't defend it on that basis, though politicians do defend it on that basis, because most people, uh, most voters, don't quite understand this. They think it's important to have a big stockpile. 
But economists say, look, it's not that we have problems getting access to oil. The problem is the supply disruptions are very real events in international oil markets, and we need to hedge against supply disruptions, and the SPR is a great hedge. Well, there's some truth to that. Uh, supply disruptions are very real events in markets. From 1956 to 2006, there were 12 supply disruptions that hit oil markets. Those supply disruptions reduced uh, oil uh, supplies on an average of 5.4% per event. So each one of these 12 events had an average impact of a reduction of 5.4% of crude oil in the market. Uh, these, these supply disruptions averaged about six months in length over time. And uh, if you do the math on that, it shows that there's about a 24% chance in any given year that a supply disruption of consequence would hit the global oil market. So the SPR is seen as a hedge against these supply disruptions. Well, is it an effective hedge? Well, against, it could be a hedge against short-term disruptions, absolutely. Uh, because, again, the withdrawal capacity from the SPR is about large enough to make up for the lost crude oil that would occur through the historic events we've seen. But it's not a very good hedge against long-term long disruptions or major events. So, for instance, hypothesize a world in which the Saudi uh, uh, government were to fall to some Al-Qaeda-type state uh, and the United States would not uh, have access to Saudi crude oil until the U.S. military remedied the situation. This is the sort of scenario that we constantly hear over and over again from some people in Washington about why we need to leave the SPR unmolested, to hold off in case a truly rainy day were ever to hit with like the loss of Saudi crude from the market. Um, well, the SPR is not going to help us much in that regard. It's simply not large enough to replace Saudi production capacity uh, for very long. Uh, on an annualized basis, the SPR couldn't do very much to the market. In other words, it's a hedge against a short-term supply disruption of modest means. It is not a hedge against the truly catastrophic scenarios that are often used to justify the SPR. No SPR would be large enough to do that under any conceivable fiscal arrangement. Um, but the more important question to me is, in this discussion, we hypothesize that the only reserves in the world are held by the SPR. But the reality is, is that market actors have every incentive to build up inventory as well. If you're in the market, you're in the oil business, you know as well as I do, as well as the Energy Information Administration does, and as well as anybody who writes in a political magazine, that supply disruptions can hit the market. There's about a quarter to 25% chance they'd hit in any given year, that when supply disruptions hit the market, high prices are very likely. And so if you're in the market, you may very well hold off inventory in the hopes of capitalizing on those supply disruptions and making a profit. So the question is, what evidence do, the fundamental question, we have to start this conversation with regards to the SPR, is what evidence do we have that market actors will on their own underinvest in inventory? That they will not build efficient levels of inventory for the US economy? Because if they will, then there's no need for the SPR. The SPR is simply doing what market actors have every incentive to do. Every conversation about public policy begins with this question of market failure. Where exactly do we find a structural problem that prohibits market actors from making the efficient investments in inventory that we would like to see. And until we see evidence that market actors will underinvest, there is absolutely no intellectual room for discussion with regards to the SPR. Um, it turns out that one way of hedging against uh, 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 supply disruptions is, of course, with inventory, but there are other ways as well. One of the reasons why market actors are not so interested in building up large inventories as much as some observers might like is there's cheaper ways of hedging against risk. You can buy futures contracts, for instance. We often read uh, during the context of this price increase how uh, Southwest Airlines has done very well because at the beginning of the price spiral, they 
apparently saw what was coming, or at least hedged against what they thought may very well be coming, and bought futures contracts locking in fuel prices over the course of the spiral, and thus they had access to crude oil that uh, was at a much lower price than their competitors and been able to be very competitive with that, right? SPR could thus hedge against the possibility of a price spiral or supply disruption without renting out hundreds of acres of land to build oil tanks uh, and uh, storage facilities to hold oil. So we can hedge in, fi in, uh, in financial markets as well. So the question is not just what, what, what reason do we have to believe that market actors will underinvest in inventory, but the broader question is what evidence do we have that market actors will underinvest against the possibility of disruption, period. Well, there's very little evidence to, to uh, suggest that market actors do. Most of the conversations you hear, of course, won't even get that far, but to the extent to which anyone bothers to make the claim in Washington, the claim is that the government knows better than people in the private sector what the chances are of disruption. They have superior information about the future. They have better risk profiles or risk horizons than market actors, and basically what I consider utter nonsense. Because, of course, if you believe that uh, market actors have, uh, have uh, uh, less of a time horizon than political actors, you haven't looked at the data with regards to Social Security or Medicare very recently, have you? Um, there are two relatively strong arguments, however, that are worth mentioning. Uh, in my opinion, these are the two strongest arguments for the SPR and for the proposition that market actors will underinvest in, SPR, in, in inventory or in hedging in general. Uh, the first argument is that there are macroeconomic benefits associated with inventories not captured by inventory holders. In other words, it may very well be that in a supply disruption, the economy could be sent into recession uh, if there, the inventory holder were able to capture the benefits of stopping a recession from occurring. He may invest more in inventory than he, than he was able to in a world in which he can't capture the full macroeconomic benefits of inventory and inventory release. So that's certainly possible, and that's a plausible argument. But it presupposes two facts. First of all, presupposes that supply shocks have significant macroeconomic impacts, and, uh, that the and it presupposes that the cost of public inventories are less than or equal to the benefits associated with the additional public inventory. Uh, I don't believe that any, either of these two facts are very well grounded, or at least these two assumptions, excuse me, are very well grounded. There was a paper uh, that that's available up on the web right now from an economist named Lutz Killian at the University of Michigan. If you Google it, Google Lutz Killian, that's not a name you're going to find very often, so you shouldn't have any trouble finding it. In the University of Michigan, you'll find a working paper that will be soon published in the Journal of Economic Literature. It is a stunner, though there's a lot of math, and you may have to find a friend of yours who's an economist to try to work through some of it. But I think reasonably educated people can plow their way through it if you can skip through some of the uh, mathematical formula that he lays out. But what Lutz Killian did is he looked at a data set with regards to the economy from 1970 to the present and did some very sophisticated vector autoregressions to try to figure out what the real impact of oil, price supply, of oil supply disruptions and price shocks have been on the economy as a whole. This, of course, has been a very hot topic amongst economists. It comes and goes, of course, when prices are high. Economists like studying these sorts of things. When prices are low, economists find something else to do. Uh, but this particular paper is very arresting. Uh, the, uh, so the analysis that Killian lays out in this paper is probably the most sophisticated and thorough yet published in the literature. And what Killian finds is that supply disruptions have a negligible impact on oil prices over time. This might surprise you. How can taking 
of, the, of uh, supply out of the market have a negligible impact on price? Well, it turns out a lot of supply disruptions occur when there's excess production capacity in the market. And so when a supply disruption occurs, Mirable Dictu, private inventory holders release inventory, and the market is, is, uh, is, is kept relatively stable. There are occasions, of course, like today, when there's not a lot of excess inventory and a supply shock would have a big price impact. But that is not always the case. It turns out that also that the price impact is relatively short-term and doesn't last. So there's no cumulative impact on prices over time from shock to shock, to, from price, supply shock to supply shock. Second, these supply shocks have modest impact on GDP, uh, up to about a negative 3% impact on GDP over 12 quarters, but there's a lot of uncertainty here. It's not anywhere near as much as popularly imagined. It turns out that supply shocks have modest deflationary impacts, not inflationary impacts on the economy. This might also surprise you. Well, if gasoline and oil prices go up, then the price of a lot of other things are going to go up. How can that lead to overall deflationary impacts? Well, the reason is if the price of oil goes up and thus uh, gasoline and products which are made with gasoline, then you have less money to spend on other things. You have to spend more of your money on these oil products and on gasoline and whatnot. That, so less money to spend on other things equals less demand for other things and thus lower prices over time for the other things. And it turns out when you control the data and you look at historical uh, figures on this, the overall impact of a price shock has, oddly enough, been very modestly deflationary. And finally, it turns out that uh, Killian finds modest negative impact on U.S. stock returns. So if you ask the question, what do supply shocks have to do with the stock market, the answer is virtually nothing. They help some companies, they hurt other companies, but overall the stock market has not been affected much. Well, the reason this is all, there's a couple of reasons why this is all very surprising to most people when they read it. And the first is, is that, well, whenever we've had supply shocks, we've had recessions that follow. So we axiomatically think that the supply shock caused the recession. But it turns out a lot of other things were happening in the economy in 1973 and 1979 and 1985 and 1991. And if you control for those other things, we lose the cause and effect implication of the price shock and the recession. So that's problem number one. It turns out that most of the economists now who study this believe that the recessions of the 70s weren't caused by the oil, uh, the oil markets per se, but it was caused by bad monetary response to the oil markets. It's also caused by wage and price controls, which are no longer in the economy, which is one way, one reason to explain why the oil price spiral we're currently experiencing has had nowhere near the economic impact that we generally imagine the price shock of 1973 it did the economy. The second reason is that there are different kinds of price spirals and they're not all the same. Well, I've been talking thus far about supply shocks, unanticipated interruptions in global supply of crude oil. But there are two other sorts of, supply, of price shocks that can hit the economy. There are oil demand specific shocks that can hit the economy. So for instance, when the market panics about the availability of future oil, it may go in a buying binge and put oil into inventory in a very aggressive manner, which can affect the market. Even if there was no supply disruption to trigger that particular buying spree, as if when market fears that a shortage could arise in the future and you get an oil demand shock hitting the economy, that can cause a price spiral as well. Again, even without a supply disruption underneath it. It's the fear of the supply disruption. And in fact, that's largely what happened in 1979. So that's, one, that's a different kind of shock. And it turns out Killian finds that has a much bigger macroeconomic impact than the conventional supply shock. In other words, to go to an old saw, the threat has been economically more important than the execution, historically, of supply shocks. And the, the other sort of supply of, of, of oil price shock that can hit the market is an aggregate demand shock. 
In other words, no interruption in supply, no panic buying, simply robust global economic growth triggers an increase in demand for commodities across the board. Now we know through the elasticity of these markets, and of course what, by what I mean by that is consumer response to price, that consumers don't respond much to price increases for quite some time. In fact, if you look at the data from 2001 to 2006, you'll find that a 10% increase in oil prices reduces oil demand by all of two-tenths of 1%. That's according to data from 2001 to 2006 in the United States, which is, you know, pretty arresting stuff. So the point here is that if those sorts of elasticities govern globally, then a 6% increase in oil demand is all that we need to put on the table to increase oil prices by 300%, which is exactly what's happened since 2003. Now, there are different demand elasticity estimates out there, and I won't muck you through that sort of literature. I'm not entirely sure that the negative 0.02 number is the correct one, but what I want to illustrate here is that these sorts of aggregate demand shocks that we're currently living under today that hit the market in 1973, arguably, are not the sort of things that the SPR can do much about. These are not supply shocks at all, but they can indeed drive the economy. It turns out when Killian did his numbers that these aggregate demand shocks were the most important shocks that macro macroeconomists would want to worry about. Supply shocks are relatively unimportant, the very thing the SPR is designed to hedge against. So I'm not particularly persuaded by the argument that there are macroeconomic benefits associated with the SPR, because what the SPR is designed to do is to hedge against a supply disruption, which is probably the least important thing we have to worry about in oil markets, and it's not a particularly, at least from a historical basis, a particularly important macroeconomic event. The second argument, which I think has some strength, is that the government cannot pre-commit not to tax away profits from inventory release. Now, this is a fairly significant matter because, after all, if you go out in the, in the market today, let's assume you want to be in the inventory business, let's assume you think prices tomorrow will be a lot higher than they are today, Let's assume you have a cousin who works at the National Security Council and you think the U.S. is going to attack Iran before Bo George Bush leaves office, or at least you read the tea leaves and you think that's fairly likely. So let's assume you want to hedge against that possibility because you know that if such a thing were to occur, Iranian crude is going off the market for a while, if not, other market, if, if not other crude as well, prices will skyrocket, and if you buy crude oil today at $103 a barrel, whatever it might be, you can probably sell it in December or January of 2009 for $200 a barrel, right? So, you're going to go out there, you're going to buy crude oil, you're going to find a place to park it, and then you are going to make some serious cash when, uh, your, when your ticket comes up. Well, of course, you're making a bet. That may not happen. You're buying crude at pretty expensive prices, and you may or may not get a higher price out of it. We may see prices continue to decline, no attack, and you lose a lot of money. Turns out inventory costs or holding costs are actually fairly steep, and of course, there are interest rates involved here because you're probably going to have to borrow some money. So, it costs money to go ahead and hedge, but let's assume you're correct and you decide to sell. Now, by the way, if you've gone through that exercise and actually played out, you will have done society a great service, would you not? You will have saved for a rainy day, and then when the day comes that that oil is most valuable, you will be Johnny on the spot with a lot of crude oil. So Congress shouldn't, of course, throw you in jail for doing such a wonderful thing, even though you did it out of the pursuit of profit, not out of brotherly love. But the fact is, is whenever such an event occurs, let's assume our scenario, prices hit $200 a barrel, what are the chances you're going to be able to keep that profit? All of it? pretty nil. <laughs> Windfall profits taxes are in play, government investigations are in play, price gouging laws can come into play. So the fact is, is since the government can't pre-commit not to lash you with a whip, 
when you release your inventory in a crude starved market, you have less incentive than you might otherwise have to build up inventory, thus inventory levels might be suboptimal in the future, and there's not anything the federal government can do about it because it cannot pre-commit not to lose its mind politically when such an event occurs. So the SPR is sometimes rationalized by friends of mine as a reasonable hedge against that possibility. The main problem I have with that argument, though I think as, as, a, uh, as a descriptive matter it's absolutely correct with regards to the problem, is that the SPR does not necessarily add to inventory. Imagine yourself in a world in which, for, let me give you an, uh, an analogy, let's assume you're in the business of uh, building rental units in the city of Miami, and let's assume you had maybe a thousand rental units you had on the market. Now let's assume an alternative scenario where you've got these, you're in that business, you're in the business of putting rental units into the market, but at any given point in time, the city of Miami could flood your market with 10,000 rental units at the drop of a pin which would, of course, crash your ability to make profit out of your rental units. Would the possibility that the federal government could drop a huge bulk of rental units on your market affect your investment decisions? Absolutely they would. Is it going to reduce the amount of property you develop and how much money you spend on it? Most likely. It turns out that if, so what I'm trying to do is explain why this might be. If you look in the literature, you'll find that virtually every single serious economist who's looked at these oil markets have concluded that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or any public inventory of physical stock is going to displace some private stock. In other words, adding a barrel of oil to the SPR does not add a barrel of oil to overall inventory levels. How much is displaced? We don't know. We don't have enough good data on it, and no good tests have been done to settle the matter. But all parties of this agree that it could be up to a one-to-one -one displacement, add a crude barrel of crude oil to the SPR, take a barrel of crude oil out of private inventory. Or it could be somewhere less than that. We don't know. This brings me to my second fancy schmancy graphic. Uh, we're going to look at uh, total U.S. oil product inventories from 1956 to 2007. What do you know, prior to the SPR, people built inventory. It's not as if the world existed without any oil in inventory prior to the all-wise and knowing federal government. But you'll see that uh, private inventories are on a trajectory upwards, and then the SPR comes along, and then what do you know, private in inventories tail off and SPR starts making up the difference. It's not dispositive. That graphic does not prove that there is a one-to-one -one displacement of crude oil from uh, the SPR to private inventories. But it's suggestive, it's a bit of circumstantial evidence to help bolster the argument that the displacement is far larger than some of us might, might hope. So if there is a problem with suboptimal private inventory levels, which again, I'm not certain has been proved, if there is, the SPR is not the most efficient remedy. In my opinion, the most efficient remedy would be tax preferences or other sorts of treatment which encourage investment in, all, in inventory as a general matter from private sector holders. An analogous situation would be in research and development. You can spin a very convincing and cogent story about how market actors will underinvest in research and, invest, research and development unless the government steps in because people who have put new inventions and new technologies or new what-have-yous on the market can't capture the full benefits of their innovations from third parties. So they will underinvest in R&D. It's a storyline I won't get deeply into, but it's a cogent argument. But if that's the case, the correct remedy is not for the federal government to then step in with its own cash and say, all right, ethanol gets this amount of money and nuclear gets this amount of money and genetically modified gerbils on high-powered treadmills get this sort of money. No, the proper remedy is to make it more attractive to invest in R&D as a general matter because there's a generalized underinvestment in R&D. The point here is it's not that we think that market actors are dumb. 
that the government can choose better than market actors can choose what to invest in. The general argument, which has strength, is that market actors have a generalized incentive to underinvest in R&D because they can't fully capture the benefits of their R&D. The exact same argument applies when it comes to inventory. If there's an argument here, it's not an argument for the SPR. It's an argument to do something to encourage inventory holding. So is the Congress or anybody in politics particularly interested in encouraging inventory holding? No. In fact, if you look at the legislative agendas that have been forwarded by both Republicans and Democrats, you find that if you hold inventory, you are a political whipping boy. You will be taxed, you will be punished, you will be regulated, and then you will be attacked if you ever release that inventory for a profit. And in fact, most of the tax provisions that have been offered for the oil and gas sector to remove subsidies, quote and unquote, have the disadvantage of actually punishing inventory holding relative to other activities in the oil market. So, let me, uh, and, this, and there's one other problem here with the SPR, and that is it, it sort of assumes that if there's a market failure here, and even if the SPR were the best remedy, that governmental actors will be efficient managers of commodities during periods of stress. That somehow when prices are high, government and a, and a supply shock hits, the government will know axiomatically now is the time to release and put 4.3 million barrels of crude oil into that market, just like it was designed to do, and then to cover the emergency and then fill it uh, during more calm times, and to operate as, say, somebody who might be a private investor would operate if he was sitting on all that crude oil during a supply shock. Is there any evidence that the federal government is an efficiency, uh, efficient inventory holder or commodity manager? No. Uh, if uh, passed as precedent, then the uh, SPR is managed on a philosophy of buy high and sell never. Whenever releases occur, they tend to be symbolic releases, less than, less than uh, theoretically capable, with a great deal of assurance that this isn't really a big release, this is just a bit of a release, and we're going to get it back later, and you know, by the time the release actually, from the time the release is announced to the time the release occurs, usually the price shock is well behind us in the rear view mirror. So, even if all of what I have said is, 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 uh, is, is pushed aside with some sort of market failure argument, the fact is, is the record the federal government has of managing the SPR is terrible. And the main reason is, is the risk-reward calculus politicians face. Let's assume, for instance, that you release because of a storm uh, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and you release 4.3 uh, million barrels a day into the market. In other words, you hit the pedal of the metal. Uh, and then two weeks later, there's a war in, in, uh, in the Middle East, and all of a sudden, the crude oil that you had been husbanding so carefully is now gone. The fact is, any particular supply disruption could always be menaced by an additional supply disruption. And political actors have every reason to fear being attacked for draining the SPR long before it was really necessary, and then not having the SPR when the real show hits the, hits the stage. Now, of course, as I discussed, any real show that might hit the stage is something the SPR probably can't address anyway. But the fact is, if you're a politician, do you want to run the risk of being blamed for allowing a price spiral to go out of control because you delayed the release from the SPR too early or too aggressively? No, probably not. That's one of the main reasons why I don't think political management of the SPR will ever make much sense, because the incentives are not correct. In the private sector, of course, we discipline inventory holders or all market actors with profit and loss. But in the political sector, we do not discipline people with profit and loss. We discipline them with political considerations, and political considerations virtually never align with market considerations when it comes to management of this reserve. In fact, if you look at the economic literature, you will find that the economists historically who have support of the SPR as a hedge against macroeconomic impacts from the supply disruptions have, without any exception whatsoever, made the argument that the only way the SPR can effectively hedge against macroeconomic uh, impacts from an oil supply disruption is if the oil is released early in the supply disruption, aggressively 
during the release period and, and fully until the disruption is passed. The SPR has never been managed that way. It's always been managed, it's always been released hardy, if ever, and then less than, f more, as robustly as possible. So for instance, we hear a lot about the release on the, uh, on the uh, uh, day of the uh, start of the 1991 Persian Gulf War. Why did the United States wait that long to release? The price spiral that was touched off by Iran's invasion of Kuwait was touched off several months before that. If there was a recession that, was, that actually did follow from that event, which I don't believe is actually the case, but if you wanted to make that argument, then it would be clear that the recession was started long before the release. <clears throat> so most economists who look at this say it's not even enough that the federal government knows when to release. They have to know to release early in the event, and the government does not do that. So let me finish here and then set the stage for a, uh, a, a discussion from my colleague Steve Henke uh, with a couple conclusions. First of all, to remind you, if, you use, if you're thinking about the SPR as a hedge against an embargo, uh, this is like uh, hedging against an attack by the Easter Bunny. Uh, embargoes are not real events. They don't need to be hedged against. Uh, we don't need to go fight boogeymen. Uh, secondly, there's no evidence whatsoever that private inventories are suboptimal. There are reasons to suspect they might because market actors may very well fear release and thus underinvest. I think that's a, that's a legitimate argument, but I haven't seen anybody nail down the impact. If, under, if underinvestment is only 5% of what was optimal, then who cares? If the underinvestment's much more significant, that's a more legitimate matter, but we've never seen it nailed down. As far as the macroeconomic justification for the uh, market failure, I don't buy that. Uh, the, o the SPR probably, we, well, we know we, that the SPR shuffles oil from private holdings to public holdings, that little is added. How much is added, we don't know, but we do know there's displacement. We know that public release is less likely than private release because we've had long experience with the SPR. And in fact, as much as the literature that's published is largely supportive of the SPR in the economics arena, you'll find if you go back and hunt those economists down today, people like Phil Verlager, people like Bill Hogan at Harvard, people who were active in this, in this uh, arena, writing journal, uh, peer-reviewed uh, journal essays back in the 1970s and 80s about SPR, back when the topic was hot, and ask them today, do you still buy it? Generally, they don't. Uh, the study that I wrote on the SPR, I sent around to many of those economists asking for their comments, knowing that all of them had a raid on the other side in support of the creation of the SPR. I was curious of what they would say. And it turns out that all of the economists who chose to answer me said, you're right, I was wrong at the time, I was a bit optimistic about government, and I was wrong about the uh, likelihood of future disruption, and I was probably wrong about the impact as well, you're right. Uh, that hasn't made its way in the literature yet. No article said Taylor's right, um, though we can only hope and pray. Uh, but the reality is, is that if you just look at the economics literature, which some people in the press do, you would get a distorted view of how economists currently feel about the SPR because that literature was the product of work done in the late 70s and early to mid-1980s, and it doesn't represent the historical experience that those very same authors now have. Finally, <clears throat> rather than drill here, drill now, which is, of course, the popular Republican mantra, uh, I would suggest a mantra of sell here, sell now, and shut down. Anyway, thank you for your time, and I'll now turn this over to Steve Henke. Thank you, Jerry. Um, Steve Hankey is our next speaker, and uh, after that we'll have a little discussion and uh, give you all an opportunity to ask questions of our panelists. And yes, Jerry, Steve did write his own introduction, but I'll read it anyway. Um, 
Steve Hankey is a professor of applied economics and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a distinguished professor at the Universitas Pelita Harapan in Jakarta, Indonesia, a member of the International Advisory Board of the National Bank of Kuwait, a member of the Financial Advisory Council of the United Arab Emirates, a principal at Chicago Partners LLC, Chairman Emeritus at the Friedberg Mercantile Group in Toronto, and a columnist at the Forbes magazine. He served as a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors in 1981 to 1982, and as an advisor to many countries, including Albania, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, Venezuela, and Yugoslavia. He also played an important role in the design or implementation of currency reforms in Argentina, Estonia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Montenegro, and Ecuador. He is a well-known currency and commodity trader and currency reformer. In 1995, he presided over the world's best-performing emerging market mutual fund, and in 1998, was named one of the 25 most influential people in the world. His most recent book, Zimbabwe, Hyperinflation to Growth, was published in Harare, Zimbabwe, earlier this year. Dr. Hankey. Thank you, Kurt. I told you to cherry pick that thing. It was a little <laughs> too long, but in any case, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'll just take a few minutes to hit what I think are the kind of the key points with regard to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Let's start our thinking uh, on the assumption that we, we will have a Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, in other words, I, I'm not going to liquidate it and, and follow Jerry's advice yet, uh, although that's uh, obviously the way to go. But let's just assume we're going to have it. Politically, we're going to have it. We're, we're not going to liquidate it. Then there's an issue, a, a major issue, about how you fill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, what, what the fill rule is, and, and what the release rule is for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Right now, the legislation is written so that the President has the authority to order a fill or order a release. So what we have basically is a, is a Soviet type of planning exercise, if you will, that makes, a, in this case, a presidential determination on we, we fill and how fast and how much or we release, and, and, and that's how it's run. Um, we've had a, a big fill uh, with the Bush administration. The, the SPRO is, is now f full, or uh, essentially full. After 2001, uh, the, the, the pedal was put to the metal, Jerry, and, and President Bush ordered a fill. And, and there was displacement that occurred in that period. We had the, the SPRO in increasing in its capacity and private inventories going down throughout this big Bush era fill of, of the SPRO. So the displacement is unambiguous in this particular case. I don't know exactly what the ratio is, whether it was one to one, but it, it, was, it was in fact uh, occurring. Um, the other thing to note is that there have been on the release side very few releases uh, of oil from SPRO. Uh, Jerry mentioned the uh, invasion of Kuwait in 1991. 
the, the main point there is that releases can influence not only the spot market but the futures market for oil and change expectations dramatically. We had oil went down by $11 a barrel in one day. It went down from about $33 a barrel to $22 a barrel. So the idea here is that the SPRO is huge. <laughs> it is very big and, and it has a lot of influence on the market. It had a lot of influence, I think about 20% of the price increase since 2001 was due to the fact that the uh, government was filling SPRO. So you, you were, they were buying high and pushing the price higher and higher. We've had all these hearings and recently released reports about speculators and index funds pushing up the price of oil. Well, the two big factors pushing up the price of oil since 2001 is, one, the dollar slide. The dollar slide accounted for probably 60 percent, 55 to 60 percent of the price increase, and then you add another 20 percent because you're filling SPRO, and, and you get very large numbers that are influenced by government policy of one sort or another. So at any rate, that's, that's uh, in a thumbnail sketch how the system works now. It, it's the, a political decision with regard to filling and with regard to releasing, and, and, and it's a presidential determination, and that's the end of it. What we can do, and, and what this has led to, we not only have the displacement of private inventories that Jerry talked about, I mean, it, it, it is real, and we, we get a lot of basically buying high. I mean, this, this is the legacy of the Bush administration, is buying high and pushing the price higher to fill this thing. On the sell side, again, we, we hardly ever sell any of this. So, you've basically got the argument that this is an insurance policy for an emergency, but no one knows what the terms of the policy are and, and what the payoff is. I mean, this is all just determined kind of an, on an ad hoc political basis. So I would suggest that the, the best way to go, and in the handout that uh, you might have picked up that, that I authored, the one that was published uh, on the 11th of September by Wainwright. If you look on page four, that's the part that deals with SPRO. So, so you can actually, you know, in, in five minutes, re read the thing when you, if you're really interested in what I have to say and, and think about it. But here's the, the idea. You can institute market-based fill and release rules for the SPRO. Again, assume we're going to have it, we're going to use it. So how do you get a market-based fill rule and a market-based release rule introduced into the system so that the market, rather than ad hoc political decisions, determine filling and releasing? What you do, on, and, and also, by the way, the thing that I want to really emphasize, this what I'm going to give you, these fill and release rules, guarantee that you will sell high and buy low. Buy low, sell high will be guaranteed. You're locked in if you use these market-based rules. You won't be doing as we've been doing in the last few years, buying high and buying higher and higher and higher. On the sell high side, what you would do is use options in the option market, and you would sell call options, 
And those call options give the buyer of a call option the right to buy crude from the SPRO at a particular strike price. So let's say this, you, 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 the government would still have to decide what the strike prices were. Let's say you put it at $150 a strike price. And the, and the government sells calls, meaning they get a premium, by the way. They're making money by doing this. So the, 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 the premiums are getting off of selling these call options defer part of the cost of, of maintaining the, the SPRO facility itself. So you sell a call option, you put the strike price, let's just say at $150 a barrel. If the price goes above $150 a barrel, the buyer of that call option that's holding it has the right to purchase oil from the SPRO facility for $150 a barrel. So if the price is higher than $150, it's profitable for them to exercise their option and take, take oil out. So that's the selling high side of the equation using, again, the market and, and option contracts. Now, let's look at the buy low side. How would that work? Well, what you would do is you'd sell put options, and you'd sell the put options at some price, let's say, less than the market price, let's say $40 a barrel. That would be the strike price for the put option. Now, the put option gives the buyer of the put option the right to sell oil at the strike price to the SPRO. So if you set the strike price at $40 a barrel and the price goes down to $30, it's very profitable for people to take oil out of their inventory or, or new production and sell it to SPRO at $40 a barrel and, and pick up a $10 a barrel uh, profit uh, right off the top from the, uh, the puts that they have. So by doing this, uh, also, the government would gain a premium by selling the puts. So, so they're gaining premium by selling calls, selling puts. And, and the thing would only kick in and operate when the price either went above the strike price for the calls or below the strike price for the puts. And what you would end up with, government collecting some premiums, some money. Uh, you would have the, the buy low, sell high uh, rule would be invoked. Uh, you would have anyone who, by the way, for national security reasons, people say, oh, how, how in the world could you do that? I mean, you, you know, you've got national security considerations. Well, the Department of Defense could buy call options if they thought that they <laughs> needed to uh, a supply of oil, and in case of national so-called national emergency, well, they, they would just buy the calls. And of course, they wouldn't like this. It would be on the budget, and they'd have to pay for the pay the premium for the for the calls. But all all of these things could really be handled by the market quite easily. The Volatility of oil prices would clearly be reduced by this kind of thing. Depending on where you put the strike prices, you, you could <laughs> narrow the thing down and you basically have this huge inventory of oil just overhanging the market on the top side. And, and then on the buy side, you've got a commitment with these calls, depending on where you put the strike price, to be buying. So, so in, a, in a way, you're putting a floor and a ceiling to some extent on the market and, and reducing a lot of volatility. And again, depending on where you put the strike price on the bottom side, uh, 
if, if you put in this kind of a system, you clearly would push the prices down, and, and there's no question about the fact that you would push the spot prices down relative to the futures prices. So the, the kind of term structure of, of commodity interest rates would be, as they say, the market would go more into contango. The, the, the futures price would go up relative to the spot price if under this kind of regime. And that's uh, the end of my story. It's very, very easy to in change the rules of the game, uh, let the market do the job that's now being done by, uh, really, I, 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 it isn't even planning. It isn't even up to the par of Soviet planning. It's, it's more ad hoc, you know, White House decision deciding when they're going to use this stuff and when they're going to fill it and, and so forth. So I think with that, I'll... Uh, give the floor back to Kurt.